0: Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's fantastic to be back, Paul. We've got a treat in store for you this week. Our guest is uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Management Managing Director, Ian Steely. Ian is a portfolio manager at uh, J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Group. Uh, he's based in London. He works on multi-sector bond strategies. Uh, within the global aggregate team, Ian was previously responsible for portfolio management of enhanced cash and short-duration portfolios. He's been with JP Morgan for more than 15 years, and he's also a CFA. Welcome to the show, Ian.
1: Morning. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Uh, it's great to have you here in Australia. Look, on the show, we're, uh, we're going to talk bonds, emerging markets. Uh, we'll uh, eventually, hopefully, get to Ian's perspective on Australia. Um, but we're going to kick off with the biggest thing happening in the financial world at the moment, and that is the slow but steady wind down of the massive asset buying programs by the world's biggest central banks. Uh, quantitative easing, uh, as it's known, um, has has been one of the defining features of the global financial system in the decades since the GFC, with major economies now looking like they're approaching some kind of reasonable level of growth and some slight hints of inflation starting to uh, reappear. Uh, This policy, uh, which mainly involves central banks buying bonds, but in the case of Japan, also a lot of stocks, Uh, We're now getting to a point where um, it's starting to be pulled back, and we're into what is referred to as quantitative tightening, or QT. Um, As one bond strategist uh, once put it to me, the QE delivered low rates, obviously, but also low inflation and low volatility in financial markets. Certainly on the volatility question, um, you know, uh, this is now being reversed, right? The QT might produce, the QT world might produce uh, more inflation, higher volatility, uh, and of course, you'll get higher rates. Um, So asset prices this year have been whipping around a bit more, uh, making markets a lot more interesting, certainly than they were through uh, 2016, 2017. Um, And so for some perspective, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, where the assets um, go when the Fed buys them, increased from $1 trillion uh, back uh, at the um, start, at the time of the GFC to 4.5 trillion US dollars, and they're now starting to pull that back. This week, the Fed's uh, going to li- uh, lift its target funds rate again. So we're continuing this path of this general tightening in policy. So it's a fascinating time and the area that uh, Ian is, um, uh, I think, most interested in. So let's start with the Fed, Ian. Um, maybe you can recap what's been happening to the US economy and what's led us to this point, and then what the Fed is doing in terms of uh, uh, winding back this uh, asset purchase, purchasing program.
1: Okay, well, let's, uh, let's take a step back all the way um, uh, to, uh, was it, December 2015. That was when they started their hiking cycle, and they've hiked rates um, seven times since then, but it's been very slow. Like glacial pace of hikes compared to what we would have expected through normal normal cycles, Um, and they've paused a couple of times, um, and also been reducing the balance sheet. And the reason they're continuing to go is because actually the U.S. economy looks fantastic at the moment. So we had four point two percent growth for the second quarter. That was the highest growth figure since two thousand and fourteen. You've currently got unemployment rate at just sub four percent, the lowest level that we've seen for a couple of decades. Uh, Job growth. which is, uh, sorry, wage growth. That's the big one at the moment. Everyone's focusing on the average hourly earnings print that came out um, at the beginning of this month was 2.9%. That's the biggest level we've seen you know, since actually we started going downwards following the financial crisis. So the stars are aligned for the US economy. And at the same time, you've obviously got this huge fiscal stimulus coming out of the administration. So the Fed's kind of looking at its path and saying, actually, inflation is uh, slightly above target. We should continue to normalise policy. And they've laid out a case that we would expect them to be hiking rates this week. Uh, we would expect them to be hiking rates again in December and personally I think they'll be hiking rates a couple of times next year that's that'll be when it gets more interesting because by that point you'll get the federal reserve fund rate um, around about three percent which actually in real terms remember they've got an inflation target of two is about one percent so you could make build a case we're starting to actually have tight policy you know for a long time you've had a very accommodative policy we get to tight policy and then what does that do and kind of where do they go from then and that's what I would be most kind of interested to see if I can get anything out of the Fed statement this week to see if we've got any indication of what what they're thinking a bit further out.
0: Uh, So is there a risk here that markets have um, just become uh, so used to uh, this uh, huge level of stimulus and uh, not just um, with the low rates, but also with the asset purchasing that markets just are not prepared. I mean, obviously, we've been talking about this now for the last couple of years about the Fed um, starting to normalize policy, and they're continuing to do that. They're, they're doing what they have said they will do. Um, but do you think that there's still a bit of a risk that markets are not quite prepared for the impact that this is going
1: to have? I think that is the case to some extent. And I actually think some of the weakness that we've seen in markets this year has been because of that. So if you think we've obviously seen a pretty weak environment for some of the emerging markets, um, some of the high-grade, investment-grade credit markets, we've seen spreads widening there. They've been big beneficiaries of this whole program. So I, 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 my sense is we're already starting to see some of this feed in. I think that the, the slight offset at the moment is obviously, as you said, the Fed's been – been doing all this uh, normalisation and trying to reduce its balance sheet. But we must remember at the same time, the Bank of Japan and the ECB, as you mentioned at the beginning, they're still buying. So it has been a bit of an offset. What's going to be more interesting to, to us is around about now, where actually the the net um, central bank balance sheet is going down. Um, so with the ECB shifting their purchase from 60 billion down, sorry, from 30 billion down to 15 um, billion uh, in October, with the Fed trying to reduce their balance sheet by around about 50. You know, Japan are doing a little bit. But actually, what we're going to have is net negative on on the central bank's balance sheets. And that's maybe more of an interesting dynamic than we've seen this year. This year, we've been low buying, but it's still been an addition. Going forward, it's going to be a subtraction. And is the market ready for that?
0: So big question is the outlook for um, for bond yields here right so um, the US 10 years uh, punched through 3% and right now uh, it looks like that's sticking um, uh, of the last couple of weeks um, so uh, where do you see
1: uh, US 10 years global benchmark um, by the end of the year so we've got we got a forecast of 3 and a quarter to 3 and 3 eighths by the end of the year which let's you know take us take a couple of weeks back and it that looked fairly ambitious when we were down in the mid to, to 80s, but we have seen a decent pickup as you mentioned we 've sort of pushed through that three percent um, some people thought that would be the buying opportunity we may kind of see them retrace back down again, but that hasn 't been the case and we 're now hovering up what just just shy of three ten which is kind of a, a, there or thereabouts the highest we 've been um, since since the since the financial crisis sort of on on the downturn um, and our sense they go on from here so I think in this, in this environment that we're going to be seeing this quarter of quantitative tightening occurring, you've obviously got an extra trillion dollars worth or so of debt to be issued by the US Treasury to fund the deficit that the administration have, have put in place. And then there was, there was a bit of a technical support, we felt, for um, actually for all assets, really, but there was um, a, a, a pension rebate um, Prior to September the fifteenth for US investors where they were getting the old tax rate favorable and, and and that went from I think 34% down to 21% on the rebate. So really if you were a US investor, you would you should have maxed out your pension you know, pre-September the 15th. And interesting enough, yields have really pushed on since that date. Now, whether that you know that's a coincidence or not, it does to me seem that the trajectory for yields over the next in a few months or so, should be higher.
0: Dave, there was some uh, interesting um, uh, research this week, I think, from um, uh, from Bamel but um, talking about how, uh, who the new buyers of uh, of. Uh, U.S. Treasuries are.
2: Yes, households. Uh, I was quite shocked by that, uh, but uh, that's what they've come up with. Uh, is doing a, Maybe it's a, sp- a suppressing force on yields for the time being, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm in much of the agreements with, uh, with Ian in terms of what, uh, what the outlook is. The rates, I think the year-to-date high was uh, for TENS was 3.14%. Um, I think this this upcoming Fed meeting will be very crucial in terms of what happens uh, in terms of the the outlook over the next few months. Uh, if it busts through that three point one four percent, you know, that will get all the technical uh, you know, analysts very excited as well. Uh, and I can see it going higher. And you know, all the other uh, the pieces seem to be feeding into that puzzle um, for you know, for higher US bond yields. So whether the other uh, households will still remain that uh, that bid there uh, to go and suppress that remains uh, a little bit uh, doubtful. Um,
0: with all of the work that you do, right, so um, looking across uh, bond uh, markets across the world, what are the key uh, spreads that you track uh, and the, um, uh, the key prices that you watch for um, how you're assessing, it maybe on a, on a short-term basis,
1: um, the state of the market? So I think some of the, the key markets, because obviously fixed income markets are so much more global now, they're so much more integrated. So you do need to be looking at not just what's happening in Treasury yields, but relate that to what's happening in Japan, what's happening um, in, the, in the Eurozone, specifically Germany. And you know, that's another reason why I would feel that maybe Treasury yields aren't quite as high as they would be under, maybe we'll call it normal situations, um, because you're still looking at you know, 10-year JGBs, about 11 bips this morning. You know Germany's actually pushed up to 50 basis points um, this morning, but still low in, in the context especially when you know, in, in real terms as well, still very negative yields. So to some extent, you can argue that the, uh, the low yields in the US is being kind of hooked down by by the low yields around the rest of the world. And, and it was specific, that was definitely the case uh, over the last couple of years, because obviously with a very steep curve in the US, it was very advantageous for a Japanese investor or a European investor to buy US fixed income, and hedge it back to their base currency because you would still get a decent pickup versus your domestic. Again, that's maybe another reason why treasury yields can push on from here because that's not the case with the flat yield curve that we're seeing at the moment. Cash rates high in the US relative um, to the rest of the world. That hedging cost um, actually becomes very, very painful for overseas investors. So we're not seeing that overseas demand as you mentioned. It's more households at the moment that have been supporting the treasury market. So if you don't have that household support, you don't have the overseas support. You know, where do we, who is going to be the buyer of treasuries? And I know this, you know, this. Kind of bucket load of debt that's being issued by the treasury to fund the deficit. So, how much you mentioned the yield curve? How much store do you place in this whole?
0: Because one of the big questions is uh, whether central bank buying, even though um, say the Fed is tapering off, it's um, uh, or uh, is going to go negative um, uh, in terms of um, it's uh, it's going to be selling treasuries, right? Rather than um, rather than buying them. Um, obviously, there's this theory that. This time, uh, the yield curve, the story around the yield curve might be different. Right, that if it inverts and it's getting very close, um, that if the two ten uh, curve inverts, for example, that we'll be we'll see a recession within eighteen months. It's typically historically been the case, um, but with uh, central banks um, being buyers, um, that might be suppressing uh, yields at the long end. Um, so. Do you think that might be the case, or and how close, how much store do you put in this uh, this idea of the yield curve inverting, uh, if it eventually does, uh, being a harbinger of an impending US recession?
1: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's, there's a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me that have used the, the phrase this time it's different, and then been <laughs> completely proven that it, actually this time is exactly the same as every other time. Um, I, I, I do, think, I do think there is these underlying factors that have impacted the long end of the Treasury curve, as, as we've sort of talked about, that haven't been there before, that probably mean that means the curve is a bit flatter and it would be under normal situations. And as, and as you said, as you get to zero, typically it's 18 months, currently around about 25 base points, more, that's two to two and a half years normally to so the next recession. I mean, interestingly, there's been a number of sort of Fed papers and looking at maybe the money market curve as a better kind of indication of um, when we're next going into recession. And I think interestingly... Enough at the moment, if you look at the money market curve, you know, we've got a couple more hikes priced for this year, when you're pretty, pretty much fully priced. This is for very short term. Very short term for yeah. September and December. Um, there's another, say, call it one and a half, um, to just over one and a half for the, for the beginning of next year. Um, but then actually the money market curve flattens out. Now, really, one of the big indicators of recession historically has been when that money market curve rolls over and you start to have a cut priced in. And that's maybe a better indicator this time around than The twos, tens, but I, yeah, I don't want to be the person who says this time it's different. Yeah,
0: um, Dave, what do you make of uh the the shape of the, the curve at the moment and uh where it might take us?
2: Oh, it's going to invert, I think, in the not too distant future. You know, whether it's late this year or early next year, depending on what the Fed does with their hiking cycle near term, uh, I think it's a given. Um, I think it's undoubted that there's been a suppression of longer dated yields by the QE programs around the world that we've seen. But I wonder about the psychology aspect of uh, you know, when it does invert. Because I know from when you go and write an article about when something has happened and when this happened in the past, it's almost always led to recession. I think there's one instance where it didn't lead to, and that was back in you know, the 60s or something like that. Uh, how people will respond when all these people, when that, when that moment happens and it does invert, all the headlines are going to be, you know, recession countdown begins. Now, how's that going to relate to people's behavior, business behavior? And will they go and respond and say, oh, no, we should go and like, batten down the hatches now, make sure like, we're prepared for what's going on now. Or will they say this time is different? And that's the the psychological question that no one can really answer. Um, certainly, like the US economy is looking stupendous at the moment, so uh, I know, excellent. But you know, how's it going to look when the, you know, the sugar hit from uh, the tax cuts uh, starts to wear off, infrastructure spending starts to wane a little bit. What will it look like then? A slowdown with the perspective, I know something will happen with the psychology aspect and people will become risk averse. There is a risk that it could happen. Yeah. So, you know, people hit a
0: threshold and they decide, okay, well, I've got to put money under the mattress now because the yield curve's inver- inverted. And you yeah. know, well, the, US, um, the
2: US economy is not going to be able to sustain the 4.2% annual growth rate that we saw in the last quarter. So we know there's going to be a slowdown. Now, couple that with the prospect that we'll see a, a yield curve inversion. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how people respond in that respect.
1: Does that mean the Fed then effectively, you know, which is our, our view, is that they go again twice this year, they then go again twice um, in the first half of next year, and then there's a pause? Mm. Because then you say so you've got Fed funds rates at three, maybe the 10-year Treasury slightly above three. That Does that prevent, maybe that prevents the yield curve from actually going to an inversion and then all the problems that you've just, just alluded to of just the sentiment around that. And maybe something in the back of their mind says, why don't we just take a pause and just let things settle down and try to get this, the back end of the yield slightly higher to kind of it's that preemptive, it's going to be a recession because we've got inverted conversation.
2: As you pointed out though earlier, they, uh, they don't seem to have this fear about no, they're not as concerned about no what's happened right now in this situation with the yield curve compared to situations in the past. So I just I wonder um, the current mindset seems to be like no, we're going to be like dictating our policy for what's lying ahead the next two years and that's it. Um, as long as they maintain that, I can't see them sort of starting to go and dictate policy based on the fact that they don't want to see that yield curve inversion because it will lead to people thinking about the recession. All I can see for the time being, and, and you can correct me if you I have a different view, but to me, that they seem like they're saying, OK, we're confident what's going on. We think inflation is going higher. We need to go and put the, uh, no, the brakes on the economy to make sure that this boom doesn't become a bust in the, in the future. So to me, it looks like they're dictating to what they think is happening two years ahead rather than the shape of the yield curve.
1: Yeah, no, we, we we would agree with that. I mean, I, I do think there's probably an option for them to, you know, maybe consider at least a pause and a, and a and maybe just a sort of a scan of the horizon as to what's happening when they when they get up towards three percent with one percent real yet rates and maybe a curve that's that's flat. But actually, in in J Powell's latest speech, you almost um, kind of alluded to the fact that they're not going to. You know, they need some, they need something to effectively stop them from mm. going. You know, at the moment, they're in, they're in a set plan. They've been doing it every quarter. And it needs, something needs to break them to actually get them out of that. And at the moment, as you say, the US economy looks stupendous. Mm. There's nothing really that we can see that would, that would really, really cause that. Yeah, and financial conditions in the US are still very,
2: very loose compared to you know, historic norms. So that's another thing they've got to consider. Like you know, US dollar strength a little bit, you know, longer term yields, but volatility in stocks is still very low. So there's lots of things that are you know, not putting up a red flag saying, go and stop hiking now. All the things are saying like, no, you should continue on the path of gradual tightening what they're going on right now.
0: I think one of the other my other uh, favourite uh, things to do from time to time is uh, look at, um, you know, if you look at uh, search trends – over time for terms uh, like yield curve and my what other, is late cycle. Late, late cycle is my other favorite one. <laughs> um, and you can see that the um, the last time those peaked was, you know, like surprise, 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, the yield curve, uh, searches for yield curve and uh, late cycle have started to tick up again in the last sort of 12 months because people are seeing the the phrase around um, in, in you know in in the the media and the coverage around them, and um, people are starting to talk about it. So look, um, who knows if it'll be predictive, um, uh, but uh, uh, certainly uh, like you, Ian, I, I don't think I'd be uh, betting against it um, anytime soon. Uh, okay, I just want to ask quickly: um, transfer mechanism for the volatility that we've seen. Um, so. Uh, can you maybe explain why the uh, move to QT has led to more whippiness that we've seen in currencies, um, bond markets? Like, we've seen some big moves in bond deals this year. Um, uh, what's going on there? How does it, how does it all um, flow through to, to asset prices?
1: So what, what really quantitative easing has done over the last decade is effectively pump money into the system. Um, initially, that's gone into bonds. But just from sort of the money transmission mechanism, that then finds its way into – so start of, sorry, in government bonds. Then that, that sort of finds its way into credit, um, into emerging markets, into stocks. So really everything's benefited. And you just need to look at asset prices and you can just you – know, asset price inflation and, you know, those great charts that will look at the S&P 500 and look at central bank balance sheets and, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a one-for-one one relationship. And <laughs> if, you, if I think back to um, – you know, early 2017, on a rolling three-month basis, we were probably adding something like 450 billion into the system. So that's, that's a lot. Um, if you look at where we are today, we're just getting tipping to that point where we're going to be actually withdrawing something from the system. Now it's actually not going to be a lot, maybe quite you know, 50 billion on a, on a 50 billion on a three-month rolling basis. So that's definitely a shift. So this world of effectively cheap liquidity, that was being injected by the central banks. And remember, they were indiscriminate; they didn't, didn't care. They, didn't, they, were, they were price insensitive. They were just buying. Um, that's no longer there. And then people are starting to question: if that kind of support is no longer there, are these elevated asset prices correct? Um, and do they need to again to that price as the balance sheets go back down? Do asset prices also need to go down? And I think that's really what's driving that's kind right. of well, the volatility. When it's, when it's
0: cheap to borrow, um, you know, um, there's a lot of buyers, right? So. Uh, Yeah, when there's there's access to to cheap money, um, you'll get people saying,
1: you know what, I'm just going to borrow and try and get onto this. Um, the the S and P, exactly, uh, and, and also the, um, when you think about where the yields were, it wasn't particularly attractive to buy government yields. So you moved into credit. You can maybe argue that if you're a credit investor, it wasn't it wasn't attractive to buy credits. You moved into high yield. So like, likewise, high yield investor goes down into stocks, and that really was what 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 happened over the course of it. And now maybe you can start seeing some of that some of that pulling back, and it's it's been. In the markets, which maybe have been some of the biggest beneficiaries, like emerging markets, uh, where there had been you know, reasonable yields and people were sort of had been, had been piling into, into those places that have seen some of the volatility over, over the course of this year. And our expectation is that you've, we've just got to come around come to realisation that volatility is likely to pick up to more normal levels. And I'm, I say normal levels, I think in pre-GFC. We've just had these abnormally low volatility, and a lot of people are now so used to that, they don't look back and say, actually, volatility is in the mid-2000s. That's maybe where we need to go back to.
0: You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. It's Paul Colgan here with David Scott and J.P. Morgan Asset Management Managing Director Ian Steely. Okay, just quickly on emerging markets, what worries you at the moment, right? We've seen these um, repeated sort of little spot fires um, in the case of Turkey. It was actually quite worrying there for a little while, Um uh, and there's this big question about, uh, you know, um, the direction of the Chinese currency, what's happening with the trade wars. Um, what in particular are you focused on in terms of risk at the moment?
1: I think you can't look much further away from the trade wars. Um, if you think about emerging markets in general and you know, China is just so important to them. Um, and any sort of slowdown in the Chinese economy is going to reverberate, reverberate not just around Asia, um, but around the rest of the emerging markets. So that's that's a lot of our focus at the moment. You know how this is exactly going to play out, the amount of slowdown it would cause to the Chinese economy. But then you know, on the flip side of that, how much are the, you know are the Chinese government likely to um, sort of you know, support the economy on on the flip side of that and try and keep keep stable growth? I think that that has to be the big question for us over the next three three to six months and how that plays out. Uh, Because one of the
0: things with this is because so much of the... Policy decisions in it are, are, are executive level policy decisions, right? Where there's a lot of power, um, you know, there's not like a parliamentary process where um, there's kind of a long-term visibility into the different policy proposals and you can kind of see over time markets can adjust to the expected outcome. Uh, this is, tends to be executive orders uh, issued, um, sight unseen uh, to the market uh, and then people have to scurry around and try and figure out what are the, uh, asset price implications very very quickly. Um, so, um, how do you manage that? How do you think about um, like positioning through um, through this period where there's this level of kind of unpredictability on the policy
1: side that might affect um, broad economies and also individual sectors? I think, I think that's going to be one of the big challenges because, you know, to your point, where these these measures are coming kind of through. You know, Fairly fast at the moment. And I think most people's expectations that by now we'd have had some kind of agreement in place, and maybe we'd have dialed down the rhetoric. And if anything, it seems to be, seems to be getting worse at the moment. And to me, that means another reason, along with the quantitative tightening argument, is that volatility picks up and you do see swing so the the way you think about it from a portfolio management side it's about positioning and size of positions so maybe we're in an environment when some of your positions just need to be a little bit smaller to take into account that we you know you may have to account for higher volatility over the shorter term so have you rebalanced a lot um like have you gone more cash in key um key funds or so i think across our 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 platform and um, um, some of our more unconstrained, constrained mandates, we have taken some of the risk down across um, the portfolios. Um, areas like investment grade credit, parts of the emerging market have come down, and we've been focusing on strategies where you can buy very short dated paper in the US that's linked to where LIBOR is. And obviously, LIBOR's gone up a lot, and you know, cash is becoming more of a kind of an asset class that you can, can be comparable, especially maybe in the US, maybe not so much other places around the rest of the world. Um, but I think that, that's the sort of stance that we're taking at the moment. You know, that said, we still see areas like the high yield credit markets as actually quite quite attractive in this environment just due to the strength of, of the US economy. So I'm not saying it's all doom and gloom out there. There's still lots to be done across fixed income markets, but just maybe being a bit more opportunistic is, is the name of the game at the moment um I, I was in uh, Tianjin last week uh, for the world economic forum
0: um uh, so the annual meeting of the new champions uh, the, the 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 wef calls it um but you know whereas davos is uh, you know the giant fund managers and the um you know the chairs of companies like microsofts and uh, and so on, you know, Ray Dalio's go there and um, and a lot of national political leaders go to Davos. This is about, as somebody explained to me, this is about the doers, this is the entrepreneurs, the scientists um, and people who are in, um, you know, uh, innovative companies that are doing things that are going to be disruptive and have, uh, have an effect on different sectors in the economy and... Um, probably trade flows, skills mixes, and other challenges that will arise for public policy. But uh, Lee Kishang spoke at that, and that was the speech he gave, where he said that we're not going to allow the currency to uh, fall any further. Which sort of um, it was like, okay, everybody risk on, and uh, you know, so the, you know, the Australian dollar rallied.
2: Um, uh, on the back of that, and Chinese stocks rallied three and a half percent. The large caps rallied three and a half percent on Friday. Just, yeah. for the, just for the sake of it, yeah,
0: yeah, why not? Um, uh, so look, um, uh, but I will say one bit of color out of that. One insight that I took away: I finally sort of get it with with uh, with Li Kishang. Um, he is. You know, looking at him outside from from the outside in, um, you know it's hard to get a handle on the character and what he's like, all that kind of stuff. First of all, he is charismatic, even done. You know, when you're listening to him through real time translation, but also he's a pretty intimidating character. Um, he was talking about threatening to threatening punishments for uh, officials who are found to not be treating foreign companies. Uh, fairly and equally with uh, with Chinese companies um, but he also has promised a um, whole bunch of tax cuts and further reductions in uh, business overheads right which is part of that kind of general uh, uh, stimulus if you like that you were that you were referring to in terms of what Beijing is going to do um, to support um, the uh, the economy. Um, I think the other thing, really interesting thing that's been happening is China taking out. This is like goes specifically to how is this all going to play out. China now taking um, ads out in U.S. newspapers. They had uh, an ad in the Des Moines Register uh, on Sunday uh, in Iowa talking about how China had found another source of soybeans and that they didn't need to buy uh, soybeans from Iowa anymore. Um, so um, that is all very much targeted at domestic US politics. Right, um, Iowa, obviously critical in the US presidential equation, um, but we're coming up in the midterms too. Um, just very quickly, uh, I know we're we 're tight for time, but how do you see u s midterms coming up in two months um, there 's talk about a blue wave uh, how
1: do you see the the risks around that so at the, the moment, the base case is that you um, Republicans keep the Senate and the Democrats have a chance to get hold of the house and the the rationale for that is you you know people have looked back and typically you get um, Sort of negative reactions to a president, any any president, it's not not just the current administration, um, and you sort of get a a, you know, a move towards that, and it's not that many seats that the uh, the Democrats would need to take control of the House. I think on on the Senate side, it's a little bit more challenging if you look at the maths um, regarding the number of seats seats that are up because that's I believe a six-year term and only a third of them are coming up at, at this t- this time round, whereas for the, the the House, it's effectively every seat seat comes out. So I mean that's that's the base case, and th- does that take you kind of more more towards a, a sort of a gridlock system in, in the US um, if they can't start to push through some of some of their policies. Um, the risks, obviously, you know, either side of that is the current administration is a lot better and, and continues to keep both House and Senate, and then maybe, you know, we're, we're going to see more policy, policy f- um, push through because I think as we were talking earlier, the likelihood is that you start to see sort of growth roll over a bit towards the back end of 2019 as the current fiscal stimulus package goes um, in and into 2020. And then obviously we've got the re-election in 2020. And do you really want that to be occurring at maybe a time when the, the economy is is rolling over? So if the current US administration does want to go up for re-election, maybe you do need kind of another boost um, to, to kind of get, get across the line there. So I think, I think the midterms are going to be you know, fascinating as to which direction um, the US economy uh, or sort of the US population is is travelling at the moment, and obviously, you know, being from London and around Brexit, and then the US, the polls haven't been a particularly great lead, lead indicator. So we're going to have to actually wait and see the results. I feel. Yeah, it's um, it's
0: it's certainly going to be fascinating. Um, I just want to quickly ask you: um, You're in Australia. You were in uh, Melbourne. Uh, and now you're in Sydney. Um, there is a, the biggest uh, thing that we're all talking about here. I mean, we've talked about QT at the global level, um, but here it's all about house prices. Uh, so Nothing's different. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we talked about in London anyway as well. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so um, from the outside looking
1: in, um, how do you assess... Uh, What's happening here? So so I've been probably coming to Australia once a year with with work, and to your point, every single time I've been here, the conversation has been about house prices and how much they've been going up. So this is probably the first time when I've come here, and the question mark has been: Are are we about to have a housing collapse again? um, Looking into me, uh, you know, as a complete outsider and not not, definitely not an expert in in the Australian housing market, it did feel that house prices were a little bit high, Um, and. Um, knowing that you were going to ask me this, I did a little bit of research um, last night and I was, I was staggered to find that the average house price in Australia is almost double the average house price in the UK and I think UK house prices are high. Yeah, I know. well and I the think there's a not
0: there's not a lot of us here to um, create huge amounts of there's only 25 million people in the country right so um, it's uh, I mean there's a big question about supply there, um, all of that kind of stuff. but certainly when you look at the unit market, um, there, there are a lot of them up for sale and there's talk now about banks breaking off their relationships um, unilaterally with uh, with investors who have uh, very highly geared properties. Um, which may cause another sort of rush of supply onto the, onto the market. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's certainly going to be interesting. Um, right, uh, I need to ask you very, very quickly. You're an English person. Uh, we've got an Australian and an Irishman around the table. <laughs> um, I don't want to participate in this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rugby World Cup next year. Um, what are you looking forward to with that? I know you 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 like following the rugby a
1: little bit. I do uh, very much so. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, and this year, to be honest, it's been a bit of a disappointment for for England rugby. I won't talk about Australian rugby, um, but you know we've obviously from what what looked like a really good base that Eddie Jones was was building us on. Um, you know, kind of came crashing down during the Six Nations um, and so for me we've got the Autumn Internationals coming up actually I'm going to be going to see Australia England so that should be good oh enjoy, um, enjoy the win <laughs> well, <laughs> given, given current current, uh, current performances I'm, I wouldn't bet on it um, I, 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 for me I'd like to see you know, a sort of improvement steady build up towards the Six Nations and to me it's let's get through the Six Nations first before we start discussing the World Cup personally I hate to say it Ireland are great at the moment mm. um, as a team I think they are to me, the one team that can possibly challenge the All Blacks on current form. But man for man, England should be there.
0: Yeah, I, I, England should be there. They've, um, I think, you know, one of those things is just uh, the, the ty- team looks promising. Um, just uh, questions about, you know, execution on the day. All that. It's one of the things Ireland have suddenly become good at in the last couple of years. They can hold the ball uh, and they can attack properly. And... Uh, that is, you know, um, that's what you need to do in the modern game. I, I think, you know, uh, New Zealand are just at a completely different level. Uh, up until they were beaten by um, uh, South Africa, I mean, they were just looking just unstoppable. Um,
2: I'm worried about that victory because that will just reinforce that they're not unbeatable and just the mindset that, that we're going to create in the All Blacks. Make them uh, try harder. <laughs> I, I, I Honestly, yeah. I thought when I saw that that result when I was over in Singapore, I was like, this is, uh, is going to be making it very difficult for any other team in the world. Cup to win now mm-hmm. yeah and they had a chance to, to, to put away a, a drop goal Um, to close out the
0: game uh, in in the last minute or two, and they didn't take it. I think they they tried to run it instead. Um, That's confidence level, but I don't think they'll be making that mistake again. Um, You know, One of the things they've been very good at is just taking the points when uh, when they need to and putting teams to the sword. Uh, Okay, look, this has been a fantastic chat. Um, uh, You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au we're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts under Devils and Detail. Details. We're on Twitter under B I A U S, and myself and David are on Twitter too individually. Our guest this week has been Ian Steely, Managing Director at JP Morgan Global Asset Management. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for coming on the show, making the time to see us uh, here while you've been in Australia. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's been great. We'll catch you next time.